Welcome to the Awoken Word Podcast. I'm your host, Anuj Rastogi. So a quick little piece of housekeeping. The Awoken Word Podcast has been an absolute success by all measures that I would have put out there. I really am doing this from a place of love and a place of passion. And I had hoped that perhaps a few folks would jump on the bus and stay on for the ride, but what's actually happened is completely exceeded any expectations I would have. Thousands of you have been checking out the podcast, and I'm just absolutely humbled for your support, for your kind words, for the people that have been reaching out through Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, for all the private messages that I've been getting of support. Thank you so much. It really does mean a lot to me. If you are enjoying this podcast, honestly, we're just getting started. The guests that I have lined up over the next several months are just absolutely incredible. And I think that this is going to be quite the journey. So if you are digging this podcast, please tell your family, tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell your coworkers. If you're making confession at church, tell your pastor. If you have a dog, if you have a cat, hell, tell your pet iguana. I don't care who you tell. Just tell someone. Share it. Subscribe definitely wherever you can. We're on Spotify. We are on Apple Podcasts, we're on Google Podcasts, we're on Stitcher, so you have no excuses. You know, leave a comment, leave a review. It really does make a difference. This is a a positive space for conversation, and I want to make sure that we tackle both the positive and the negative head-on in honest and sincere ways. I'm really excited about today's episode, but let me pause for a moment before I get into all that. I've got some great news to share about this show, something that uh, I've been keeping under wraps for a little bit and am really excited to let out of the box now. The Awoken Word podcast, this show has been picked up by Ruckus Avenue Radio. Now, some of you may have already heard about this or seen that video of me in Mumbai in the back of an auto rickshaw announcing this. But for those who don't yet know, Ruckus Avenue Radio is actually the first mainstream South Asian content-focused radio station. It is global in the true sense of the word in that there are hosts and shows and content from all over the world. And what's even more exciting is that it's tied in with a partnership with Dash Radio. For those of you who don't know, Dash is actually the world's largest digital-only radio platform. So this is just good news all around. There's a lot of great programming from all different facets of the South Asian diasporic, as well as subcontinent experience. So definitely do check it out. You can go to the Dash Radio app. You can go to ruckusavenueradio.com. So there's a lot of different ways to listen to it. As far as this show, it's actually going to be airing every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific. Thursdays at 12 noon Greenwich time, so you know, right there at noon in the UK, and Thursdays at 4.30 p.m. for those folks who are in the subcontinent. So I wanted to say thank you to the folks over at Ruckus Avenue Radio for reaching out, for believing in this show, and I'm really excited to be able to take these conversations, these important and honest conversations, to an even bigger audience. For those of you who do end up checking out the show on Uh, Ruckus Avenue Radio. The shows will be broken into one-hour segments, and uh, it's possible that there will be extended conversations that are featured directly on the podcast, but I do encourage you to check it out there on Ruckus Avenue Radio. All right, moving on. So in case it wasn't obvious already, I'm extremely excited about today's conversation. 
I had the good fortune of being down at South by Southwest EDU in Austin, Texas. Now, every year, South by Southwest is an interactive and technology and media and film conference that's run out of Austin, Texas. I've never been to the main conference as yet, but I did have the chance to go to the EDU or education conference that precedes it in the week before. And I have to tell you, I didn't really know what to expect when I got there. But from the moment I walked into the first keynote was absolutely floored. This conference was an epic experience for me personally, because it really is a collection of educators, mostly from the US, but a number of folks from around the globe as well, who are all oriented around solving the issues of education. I got to meet some incredible people who are all on an important mission all different ways of tackling this problem, this opportunity, this challenge of education, and changing the world through our future generations. One of those people that I met, and I'm happy to call a friend now, is Darius Baxter. Darius is our guest today on this episode. And let me back up and just tell you about how I met him. So I reached South by Southwest. I went to the first keynote panel discussion on the first opening day of South by Southwest EDU. And there was four folks up on this stage. There's about 2,000 people in the crowd. And I see a a young gentleman up there in a gray t-shirt on this panel. And by the time that he spoke, every single thing that he said just resonated in some deep way at a human level with me. So I reached out after that panel discussion, got a chance to meet Darius, And he was very gracious and very personable. And we got to talking and I said, look, I'd really love to get you on the podcast. Can we make this happen quickly? So he made himself available and you're going to hear the conversation that happened 24 hours later, live at South by Southwest EDU. And you'll have to forgive some of the background noise. It was uh, the quietest hallway I could find at the convention center. But we had a face-to-face conversation and it was fresh and it was topical And I have to say I was both blown away and humbled by the incredible level of wisdom and wherewithal, intuition and vision in this young man. Considering the fact that Darius and I had only just briefly met 24 hours before, we had what I believe is quite a remarkable conversation. And we jump right into the deep end of some pretty heavy issues. Darius shares his early life and experiences and how he, at age nine, made decisions that many of us, perhaps at the age of 50 or 60, might not be able to make. We also talk a lot about some of the big issues that are of real importance today in the world and specifically in America, the issues of race relations, the issues of gun violence, of systemic poverty, and in particular, we talk a lot about education and the role of education in helping to solve and overcome a lot of these challenges in the country and in the world overall. I found I had to pinch myself over and over just thinking that such a young individual was gifted with such wisdom and vision, and yet he's also humble enough to note that there have been mentors and people in his life who have helped change things for him, who have helped guide him in the right direction, And so you'll find that I think he's very much a sponge who looks around at the world around him and absorbs and figures out what he should do to be the best version of himself every single day. 
I actually had the chance to spend the next two or three days with him, and we spent a lot of time hanging out together. And I have to say, Darius, brother, you are a remarkable human being, and uh, I'm really, really happy that we had a chance to spend some time together. You were gracious with every single person that I saw you meet and interact with, and it's no doubt that the world is a little bit better for having folks like you in it. I don't want to give away too many things other than to say Darius has had an interesting life, to say the least. He and his family suffered some tragedy early on. And while many people will take trauma, particularly that in childhood, and turn it into something negative and self-fulfilling, Darius actually did the complete opposite and continues to do so. He's actually lived an incredible life and is giving back to the community in ways that, quite frankly, make me feel small. So without further ado, I want to share with you this incredible conversation with Darius Baxter, one of the co-founders of Good Projects, the 2019 South by Southwest EDU opening keynote panelist, and just an all-around good human being. Here you go, Darius Baxter. This podcast is my humble attempt to bring a full grain of sand of goodness to the beach of human experience. Inspiring. This podcast is my love letter to all of you. The Awoken Word Podcast. All right, we are here in Austin, Texas with Darius Baxter. Darius, how you doing, man? I am. I'm having a great time in Austin, man. It's a little chilly down here, though. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I, love, I mean, I came down from Toronto. I was hoping to get away from the cold, but this has been, yeah, no. Um, so, yeah, we're here uh, on the Awoken Word podcast in Austin. We're here for South by Southwest EDU. So I'm going to be just straight up honest. Yeah. I didn't even know you existed 24 hours ago, right? Like, never heard your name, didn't know anything about what you did. Yeah. And then walked into this panel yesterday morning and see you guys come out, and it was, it was a wake-up. The stage with you and Lisa and David and just the, the positivity and the energy around that was incredible. Just seeing people from different walks of life doing their thing in actually making the world better. I thought your story and some of the stuff you said was just like it, it kind of blew my mind, especially realizing that you're 25, right? Yeah. <laughs> like that, that's a lot of wisdom packed into a few years. A, so. a lot of experience, man. I had a lot of ups and downs. So I know you founded Good Projects, yep. and I want, I want to get to that, but I want to understand like Darius the man, like kind of where you're coming from. Like, what was the come up up until this point? What's your story? Who are you? That's a very interesting question. I was actually, I was out in Utah this weekend and we had to do an exercise where they blindfolded us for an hour and a half. Mm -hmm. And we had to answer that same question. Um, and it was one of the most liberating experiences of my life because you look around, you, you don't have the opportunity to kind of look at people's preconceived judgments, like as you're making these statements. So you kind of can speak truth to power. Um, and just reflecting on what I discussed there, like I'm, I'm a man, I'm a man that uh, that thinks, that loves, that questions, um, that is driven. Um, I'm someone that just wants to leave this world a little bit better than I found it. Um, I'm a believer. Mm -hmm. um, I'm a son. I'm a brother. Right. Uh, I'm a human being. And by the grace of God, I've had the opportunity to do some amazing things in my life, and I just want to continue to push forward with those. So, I mean, that, that's, that's a lot. That's a, there's a lot of dimensions there. What, what makes you you? 
what are kind of key moments, like when you look back at your 25 years, what kind of stands out as like, this is a moment that could have taken me this direction or that direction? Tons of experiences like that. Tons of them. To be able to focus on one, I'd be lying to myself. I'd say one of the, one of the real defining moments for me was definitely the point when my father died when I was young. Um, here I am, nine years old at the time, and he was tragically murdered. And at that point, I could have been bitter. I could have turned my back to the world and said everything is against me. Uh, but I had a mother that continued to get up every morning and to put her pants on and get into this world and fight. And she set a great example for me. So I, can, I followed the same path. Um, I didn't turn the path that a lot of my peers went down. I didn't turn to the streets. I didn't start acting out and have negative behaviors. I let that trauma motivate me to be who I am today. And it still motivates me to reach the goals that I have 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 50 years um, for myself and for the world. Uh, Can forward. you remember being nine and making a decision about that though? Like that you yeah, I remember, I remember very specifically. It was, um, it was a moment where I remember coming down the steps and we were, this is right after we had lost our childhood home. And my mother used to sleep on a couch because we shared one bedroom in my grandmother's house. And I remember coming down the steps and seeing this. And I remember making a decision that I was gonna create a life for myself and for my family that my mother never had to struggle in that way again. Like being a child, seeing her do that, and she's an educator. Mm -hmm. So she would sleep on the couch every night, but then wake up in the morning and go and put a smile on her face and give 100% to the kids in her classroom. Um, and I was motivated by that. And I said, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make it better for my family. Mm -hmm. Wow, at nine. Yeah. Like, I mean, people don't have that kind of resilience at 50. <laughs> it's, grit, grit is the biggest determining factor for success. I truly feel that way. And I, get, I, ask, I mostly ask myself this question, especially when I look at the programs that we run, when we work with kids that have been involved in the juvenile justice system. Uh, and these are kids that in many ways have given up on their life. Mm -hmm. And when I think about the structuring of our programs, and when I think about um, even my two co-founders, because they have similar stories where one's mother had sickle cell anemia, father was incarcerated at a young age, and he made the decision for himself that he wanted to be successful. The other one's parents had him when they were teenagers, and he experienced homelessness, but he made the decision for himself that he wanted to be successful. And I constantly am questioning and asking them, hey guys, like what was it? Like what was that moment? Like what was it about us as children? Like are we just that special? Like did God put a little extra spice mm -hmm. yeah, <laughs> in yeah. the mix when he made us? Or is there really something that we can replicate here that any kid that goes through these experiences, if you inject this into their life, that they'll make that decision and say, I want better for myself and I want better for my family. Um, so yeah, they, I, I don't have the answer for that. But yeah, it was, it was very mature for that. It's amazing because you, you see like struggle strengthen somebody and break somebody else. But I mean, you made a decision at that point, but did you find yourself like being tested all the time? Like, are you going the right way? Like, like you made this decision, it was just kind of a clear focus all the way through. Not, not to say that it was easy, but that you just knew that's what you wanted, you weren't gonna stray. Every day, every day I'm tested. 
every day and test it. Life is like to reach the pinnacle of life, the summit of life. Um, you're going to go through the mountain, and if you, you literally using that analogy, there's ups and downs in mountains. It's ups yeah. and downs, ups and downs. But when you look up, you realize, oh, I've gotten up a few thousand feet. I used that analogy. I was just in Utah, <laughs> this really tall mountain. Right. <laughs> and, uh, like every single day in life, we're going to be tested. Like in my personal journey, whether it's been um, ups and downs with schooling. Like when I look at college, like I was suspended from college for a year. Um, that wasn't that long ago. I got suspended from college for smoking weed. Like, and I could have been like, man, the world is against me. Like this yeah, is something yeah, yeah. so simple. Like it's legal in DC now. Like it got legalized six months later. I'm like, oh, oh my God, this is crazy. <laughs> but you know, like to say that that moment in my life was one, again, it was a test where it wasn't as traumatic as my father died, but it was a different experience to say, okay, here you are, life's knocked you down, right. and what are you going to do? I made the decision in that moment, I got suspended for that year, came back to college, and then finished college a year early. And this is at Georgetown? This is at Georgetown. Okay. And I finished college a year early because I made a decision. I said, I'm graduating with the class I came in with. And I went and I did everything I needed to do to make that happen. That was grit. Like, and that's what I try to teach our young kids. I'm like, look, you're going to make mistakes. And I tell them, I'm a human being. I'm not perfect. Mm -hmm. You ask me, who am I as a person? Like, even sitting on stages like this, you know, it's cool when um, everybody comes up to me at the end and they're like, oh my gosh. I had a guy literally yesterday at the open party just come and say, I just wanted to touch you. That was a little weird, but you know, like, <laughs> and, I, and I explain to people and they're like, oh my gosh, like he's personable. Like, I have a conversation. I tell them, I'm a human being. I'm yeah. a normal person. I don't want to be anything else but that. Um, and in that, I'm going to make mistakes. I'm going to have good moments. I'm going to have bad ones. But at the end of the day, I have such high expectations for myself and the people that are around me, including the young people in our programs, that we continue to move forward. Like, the best thing I can be is an example for the young people that I work with. Like, that's why I love being able to have opportunities like this. Like, they all sat in the office yesterday and watched the panel, like, on the big screen. Yeah. But then I'll be back in the office on Thursday, and they get to actually be like, like, wow, like this is the same dude that would drive to McDonald's with me after school. What's amazing about that is a kid can look at you and now he sees that that is possible. Yeah. Right? Because I, I don't know who said it, but and it may have even come up on the panel that like, you can't be what you can't see. Yeah. Right? And so if you don't see yourself in leadership, you don't see yourself in a certain field, if you, if you only ever see yourself represented a certain way, yeah. it takes like a really exceptional person to kind of break out of that, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's got to be, this, I would imagine for like a lot of these kids that you're working with, doing this is as important as just kind of working with them, right? Because you're just out there being in the world. Yeah, and, that, and that's honestly one of the challenges that I'm now having as our organization continues to grow. Because mm -hmm. when we first got started, I was 22 years old, we had a shoestring budget, I was doing the work and the admin and this stuff. Like, so I was in the, the field every day with the kids, right. every single day. Um, and I was working 100 hours a week doing that. Um, but I loved it. And as the organization has continued to grow and opportunities continue to expand, like I'll be here in Austin for three days. Mm -hmm. That's time I'm not spending in the community and I'm challenged with this, like, okay, like, how should I feel about this? But I have to constantly remind myself to the point that you made the joy that those kids had in watching me on that screen yesterday to know like, wow, that's Darius that's up Darius there. Up there. You know, like that's just as important as me. And there's a million being people watching now. Darius up there doing his thing. Exactly. Yeah. And for them to know, like, this is the same dude that is sitting next to me helping me with my homework, that's just as important. 
And that's been my internal challenge. It's like, man, you have to keep, I have to tell myself, you have to keep growing. You have to keep building. You have to keep doing more and getting bigger because that shows the kids that it's possible because they're getting to see my growth. Like, mm -hmm. I'm 25 years old. Like I said, I started when I was 22. I was the same age as a lot of that kid. Like, I want to be the best example for them. Like, look, when you put it, they know how hard I work. They know I'm in the office late at right, night, yeah, yeah. early in the morning. Um, but there, it's being tangible for them. They're not catching me at the point in my career where I've been in it for 20, 30 years. I have this success, and they're like, oh, now they're meeting me. Yeah, they're getting to see the journey. I'm inferring this. If I'm a young kid, there's the age thing. I mean, you're 25 and you're doing this. You're not 50, right? Like, yeah. The years, especially when you're a kid, that feels almost inaccessible. Like, it's so far up. But here you are at 25 doing this. Yeah. We'll talk more about your organization and like you know, who these kids are and stuff. But for a lot of young black kids, seeing you up there at 25 in Austin, Texas on the stage. I remember growing up, you know, as an Indian guy, not ever seeing myself represented anywhere, yeah. right? And then Apu shows up on The Simpsons. And that's the only frame of reference anybody ever has for an Indian person for like 20 years of my life is Apu. And that's started to change now. We're still not anywhere near it. And then representation in the black community is still pretty skewed. It's always an athlete or drug dealer or gangster. But there's black doctors, there's black business people, there's black people doing everything. Everything that everybody else does, black people do too. And we need to see ourselves and each other represented that way too, right? Like there was a, I was on this blockchain or at this blockchain panel yesterday. Mm -hmm. Three lawyers, all of them women, all of them black. This panel was off the hook. They were so well-versed, so intelligent, and so in command of the thing that they were talking about. And I was like, man, I wish my daughter and my son could see this. That, for me, it was like one of those moments in life that was great. So I think you just doing this is just such an inspiration for, no. for people. Certainly. No, I really appreciate that. And these are the conversations that I'm constantly having, specifically as it pertains to race. Um, I'm not ignorant to the fact that I am a young black man mm -hmm. and I'm 6'4 at that. So yeah, I, yeah. Can't hide, I can't really hide. Yeah. Uh, but for me, it, it goes bigger. It really transcends race. Uh, I, when I set out in my work, it was never to go out there and say, all right, I want to save a bunch of black kids. For me, it was issues of gun violence. And I was lucky to have partners that felt the same as strongly about preventing gun violence as I did. Um, and we went after that. Then it was issues of um, juvenile incarceration. And we tackled that, now there's issues of poverty. I didn't enter into this work saying, yo, like, let's focus on the black kids. It was, yo, we're focusing on these problems, and it just so happened in Washington, D.C., every time we turned to these issues, it was black people being most affected. Mm -hmm. um, so now I find myself in a position where I do have to be a role model for them and show them, like, look, aside from all the programming we're doing, I need you to set high goals and high aspirations for yourself. Right. But Ultimately, the goal is not just to be an inspiration for black kids, but it's an inspiration for young people across the country. Right. No matter your race or creed, so an Indian kid in Toronto or a, uh, a Jewish kid in um, Idaho. Like, it doesn't really matter. I want to motivate young people to know, like, look, like, especially a young black dude with the past that I've had, you know? Like, mm -hmm. I've been arrested. Like, I've been suspended from school. Like, I haven't done, I haven't always done it the right way, but I've continued to move forward. Like, so no matter who you are, where you are, whether you're a man, woman, or child, you know, you can do it. And I want that message to resonate. And this is what we were talking about yesterday, is that at the end of the day, you lead with love and you lead with your heart and the universe will take care of the rest. Uh, yeah. You had this analogy yesterday about 
seeing starfish on the beach. Yep. And you can only throw so many back in. You need to take care of the oil rig that's out there that's actually driving them all out of the water in the first place. Mm -hmm. So you talk about gun violence, you talk about the rates of incarceration, particularly in America. Yeah. Any of these, these issues, these are big macro issues that are man-made, but in doing what you're doing at a grassroots level, how are you affecting that? A huge issues. And similarly, kind of how we hit on the panel yesterday when the question was asked about teachers being disengaged because they don't always see those immediate outcomes. The way I look at these problems is, and one of the reasons why I started so young is because I understood how big the issues are. Right. Um, but the thing is, every single day I wake up, I'm chipping away at it, chipping away at it, chipping away at it, every single day. And I'm fully confident, and I know I serve a God that wouldn't put me in a position to do something that wouldn't pay off in the end. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, yeah, it's, they're huge issues. But what is a life worth living if you don't go and try to solve big problems? Like, yeah. We can go and say, all right, I want to go make a bunch of money, or I want to go out here and be famous so I can have girls on a yacht, like whatever it might be. Yeah. Um, but does that really, is that really what you want to be remembered for? Like, I'm blessed to be in a position where I have a heart that I want to be remembered for something special, for having helped people. Mm -hmm. And I'm not, too, I'm not too proud to admit that. Like, I want to live a life that's fulfilled. I want to live a life where I'm laying on my deathbed. I know that I touched someone's life somewhere. Like, the best feeling I have coming out of that panel yesterday is not that, okay, there's 70 people waiting in line to talk to me after. It's the woman that came up to me and said, yo, I shed a tear because what you said touched my soul. Yeah. Like, I'm a vessel. Like, I'm a vessel. What comes out of me is through years of people pouring love and mentorship and guidance into my life. And you talk about, you asked about um, this idea of, like, yo, you're so young and you have all this wisdom. It's because I've listened and I've learned and I've observed. You're a sponge. Right? I'm a sponge, man. Do you think, do you, did you go out looking for it or do you find that it just sort of attracted itself to you? Like, have you just been fortunate to have certain people in your life or did you go out looking for that energy? I've just been fortunate, man. I've been fortunate. I feel like everything happens for a reason. And this is the place that God has put me in to do this work. And he knows in order for me to do it, I need guidance and I need people in it. Not to say that there hasn't been dissenters in my ear that I've kind of had to I'd be like, all right, like, I, don't, I can't take that yeah. information. Uh, but in all of our lives, in any given day, we really just got to open our hearts. There's always people that are looking to pour knowledge into us. Do you think that America has actually faced itself in terms of all of these issues that, I'm simplifying here, but I think these issues are actually, if there was enough will from enough people, uh, it wouldn't be that complicated to solve because they're actually complicated situations created here, right? Because everyone's looking out for their own interests. Yeah. But do you think America's actually faced itself in the mirror and said, like, this is our issue and we made this happen? Mm, I think recently, yes. Obviously, we know the state of America right now. We know the divide that exists in this country. And I'll never forget after the 2016 election, it was literally after, um, after election day. The very next morning, it was raining in D.C. Mm -hmm. And I'm getting a bunch, I did some work on the 2016 campaign. So I have a bunch of my friends texting me, hey, um, like, what are we going to do? How should I feel about this? Like, long, long, my phone is just blowing up. Like, I'm this guru. Like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, 
And the message that I gave to everybody, I said, why are you upset? Like, why are you sad? Like, at the end of the day, moments like this are great for us because they remind us that change happens in the community mm -hmm. and we have to come together like in moments like this and remind ourselves that we have to work together. Like, has America looked itself in the mirror? In many ways, it's been forced to. I don't yeah. think it's something that has been optional, but the current state of the country is that people are being elevated to levels that are really a true reflection of who we are deep inside. And we have to ask ourselves, is this truly who I want to be? Um, and if it's not, then do something about it. I've got this analogy. I, I got an aquarium for the kids at home. So when it's clean, fish are happy, everything's all good. But then every now and then you just got to clean the gravel. And as soon as you do that, like it just all this muck that's just been sitting in there, stirred up and the water is filthy. Mm -hmm. and, and I feel like for, and this is not just America, this is probably most parts of the world a lot of that filth kind of settles for a while and you forget it's there and then someone goes in and just stirs all that up again and here you go, it's just messy, it's in your eyes, you can't see straight or anything. I feel like that time is right now. Like the filth never went away, like these, these issues, these, uh, these demons that we fight with, the prejudices, all of these issues, they didn't, they didn't go away, they didn't just magically appear in November 2016. Right? Like they were just kind of lurking you know, under the surface. So. Now that it's out in the open, how's that changed the world for you? You in your own personal life, but also in terms of the work you're doing with the kids, how's that affected them? It, hope has definitely been dwindling, and it's very obvious. So I'm working on a project, obviously, with David with the Weavers, um, and then working on a separate project with Tim Shriver uh, with a Special Olympics called Inspiration Nation. And we've been actually, uh, so I was running a little late, just came from a high school um, here in Austin. Okay. And right now they're doing focus groups with those students and we've been doing focus groups around the country. And across the board you hear from kids, a lack of hope. The American dream doesn't exist for me anymore. Um, I'm not the captain of my future. And that's definitely concerning for me, um, especially when it's coming from the mouths of young people. Mm -hmm. And when I hear stuff like that, it's just a reminder of how important the work that I'm doing and a lot of the people here at South by Southwest EDU are doing, right. where we have to constantly be pouring into young people, like, look, you are the captain of your path. Like, nothing is going to stop you if you put your mind to it. Not to say there won't be obstacles in your way, but you have to wake up every morning knowing that if you put one foot in front of the other, that you can be and do anything you want to be. Like, and so it is... We're at a very pivotal time in this country mm -hmm. where if we don't wake up and realize like, hey, like I'm in control. It doesn't matter who the, the, is in the president's office. It doesn't matter who our Congress is. It doesn't matter who my boss is. It doesn't matter about my childhood. It doesn't yeah. matter about um, if I'm scared of the future. I need to be present now and knowing right. that we're in control. We live in the richest country than the history of the world. This is not a joke, this is a fact. Yet people across the board, when they get surveyed, a lot of Americans will say that they're unhappy. A lot of Americans yeah. will say that they're chronically lonely. Why is that? Because people aren't feeling in control of their own lives. Where does that come from? I'm on a journey to figure it out and in many ways combat that. And this is what we discussed yesterday. But at the end of the day, in the small rooms and even the people listening to this podcast, whoever they may be, 
I just want them to be reminded that at the end of the day, they control their future. They control their destiny. Decisions determine destiny. And when you're making decisions for success, then you're going to be in a better place. And I, I can guarantee that. Yeah. I, you know, it's, it's funny because um, the Democratic primaries are going to be crazy. It's like everyone and their dog is going to be in, in, you know, in the mix. But there's this one guy who I've been following who I think is interesting because he's Andrew Yang, a businessman. Um, and he's been really big in, in his platform on universal basic income. Mm -hmm. Largely because as automation and AI and all these changes in the workforce take hold, there's going to be like five or six million truckers out of work within the next 10, 20 years. There's going to be all of the other services and truck stops around them that are going to be uh, people out of work. People in retail are going to be out of work. And men especially, and I don't know if your experience has shown you this, but like mine has that men that are unemployed, that are frustrated, that feel like they're not able to contribute, a lot of men just end up going inward and like becoming self-destructive, right? Self-destructive behaviors. So knowing that there's this tidal wave of all these changes coming in the world, we need to be able to remind ourselves that we're still that captain of our own ship. I don't think things are gonna get easier in the next little while. I think they might actually get a lot more difficult. So let's go back to Georgetown. Why Georgetown? How'd you end up there? And then tell me more about this decision that, I mean, was it even a decision really to go, you know, left or right, go Wall Street or go, um, you know, into grassroots doing stuff in the community? Definitely was a decision. Um, my mother slaved to get her boy <laughs> into college. <laughs> and obviously we talked a little bit about my, my time away from the school. I had a lot of heartbreak to get me across the graduation stage. Um, so in many ways, I owed it to her to go out there and to make money, to be honest. You know, we, have this, we had this conversation actually two weeks ago where she was telling me how she spent her entire retirement just to try to get me through school. I was like, thanks. You know, like, but that just, it kind of puts it in context for a lot of families where my mother is no different than a lot of mothers in this country, where in many ways they're betting on their children as their retirement plan. Mm. Where it's like, I'm gonna put my all into this child in the hopes that they provide better for this family. Um, Georgetown was that opportunity for me to do that. Um, and I knew that again, even in high school. Right. Um, so to go to her uh, a few months before graduation, and to say, hey, mom, I'm thinking about starting this nonprofit, uh, she could have been like, that is the dumbest thing I ever heard in my life. <laughs> like, we need to go and get you a nice consulting job yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that you can help me pay this mortgage. So how'd she respond? Well, uh, with love, like she has my entire life. And I expected nothing different from her. She's always been supportive. She always knew that I'm gonna find a way and I'm gonna work it out, because she raised me. And she knows she's resilient, so she raised me and my brother to be the same way. Um, Your brother is older or younger? He's a year and a half older, yeah. And what's he doing? Um, music producer. Okay. So she supported him in his journey nice. too, man. He's down in Atlanta. Nice. Uh, doing his thing. Okay. Yeah. Men. I've got this, this little bit of theory that I think, I mean, I think all people have got this level of brokenness, but there's something unique about men. It doesn't matter where you go in the world. Yeah. If there's something wrong with the way boys and men are being raised or the circumstances that they're in, it just turns destructive more often than not, whether it's violence or gangs or corporate exploitation or whatnot. And 
how do you see your, yourself as a man in this world? Like, what, when you think of yourself as a man and what that actually means to the people around you, what does that mean? That's a, that's a really good question. Um, it's ironic. So I was a women's studies major at Georgetown. Okay. Uh, I was the only guy in wow. my in my uh, in my class for four years. Dude, the ladies must love you. <laughs> no, su surprisingly, no. I didn't no? get a, as great a reception because they're like, "Oh my God, why are you here?" We are. <laughs> like, this is this is feminist theory. You know, I'm like, I'm just here to learn. Yeah. You know, like. Um, but no, it was good. It was good. By the end, by the end, we we all bonded. You know, we agreed, we disagreed, um, but we all came out strong in the end. Um, I, I went to school with some amazing women mm -hmm. um, and learned a lot from them throughout the process. Um, but as a man, I think it's something that you're constantly defining. Mm -hmm. Like I was raised by a single mother, so everything I know about being a man, I learned from her. Um, to say that she raised me to be the man that she would have wanted in the best way possible. And what I mean wow. by that, everything from uh, she would, I remember like she would say, shake my hand randomly, would just say like, shake my hand. And I'll shake her hand. She'd be like, that's not firm enough. Like shake it, shake it firmer. Like, so I have a really firm grip now. My mother taught me that, you know, like when I was in high school, you know, she, when, uh, when I started dating, um, she would give me money for me and the girl. She was like, you, you, you pay for both of you guys. Don't let her pay for anything and open the door for her too. So now when I go, anytime I'm riding with a young lady, I always open the door yeah. to the car because my mother taught me to do that, you know? And she, this is a very extreme example. <laughs> when <laughs> I was about seven years old, I played, when I was playing football, the first time I really got hurt, I'm laid out on the field, rolling around like a kid. I'm like, oh my God, I'm so hurt. And my mother comes running out to the field. And you're excited. I'm a seven year old. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm better now. My mom's here. And I remember she said, get your ass up. <laughs> <laughs> like, what? And she drags me off the field and she said, I don't care what happens. I don't care how bad you're hurt. You never lay out there on the field. And that's kind of the analogy that I've taken in life. Like, my mother raised me to be strong. She mm -hmm. raised me to be a leader um, because she knew the day would come where I had to leave my family. And now I am here at 25 years old and my family looks up to me. I'm responsible for them. Even my older brother, mm -hmm. like they look to me for guidance. And this isn't something that happened unintentionally. I've been right. getting bread for this my entire life. That's why I'm able to sit in front of crowds like this and have confidence because mm -hmm. my mother made me that way. You know, she always told me to stand up straight, look people in the eye. Uh, so <laughs> it's, it's uh, I've seen the opposite of that too. Like so many, so many boys that grow up without uh, a father or with a father who's not at his best, to say it lightly, they just end up inheriting that that thing. I am fortunate. I'm lucky. Like my dad, I I, I couldn't ask for a better father. And but he wouldn't. We didn't grow up. My brother and I. We didn't grow up with him saying this is how. <clears throat> how you be a man, this is how you do this, this is how you do that. It was just him being in the world, him being respectful towards women, him being um, where he was when he first came to Canada. He was up north, and as an Indian man, he would be working near a bunch of Aboriginal and Native reservations and in towns that were mostly white, being called the N-word, like on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. So it was like racist and inaccurate racism at the same time. 
And he, but he just found a way to kind of build bridges with people, you know, with the native community. He treated people with a lot of respect. For years, he was running um, his own like small business gas station and stuff. And I remember him telling me, and I, I, I don't know whether I agree with this, but I understand where he came from. He told me when he'd have a black customer walk in, he would go out of his way to be extra kind to him. Because he's like, in this world, chances are that a, a white customer and a black customer come into my store, chances are the black customer had an experience that was negative that day, interacting with the world in some way that the white person didn't have. Mm -hmm. And that may not be true in all cases, because you don't know everybody's story, but it was, for him it was a numbers game. And he just, because he saw so much of it, that he wanted to be the one person in their day that was you know, a stranger that could make it just a little bit better. So like, it, there's, there's things like that that he did that I kind of picked up and I learned along the way, right? Because he, he had every reason to be you know, jaded. I think like racism is pervasive everywhere. Like Indian people are racist, Chinese people are racist, black people are racist. I think the degree of structural inequality that you can impose is gonna vary depending on where you are in that society. We all have our kind of hangups and prejudices even towards ourselves, right? But you know, like some of this stuff just about being a human being, being a man, like I learned from my dad through osmosis, right? But it's amazing that you know, you, you have a mother that was so it seems intentional about everything, like shaking your hand. You know, a lot of mothers would be like trying to baby their son who's like laid out on the field and here she is like saying, get your ass back up. Like, there, was, there was no babying from Stephanie Page Baxter. <laughs> <laughs> no, I had to grow up very quickly in, in our household. So, Good Projects, what led you to start this and what is Good Projects? Good Projects is a group of young people that are just motivated to see the world a little bit differently. Um, it was founded in our senior year of college, our being myself, my co-founder Troy, and my other co-founder Danny. Um, talked about it a little bit where we're just a few weeks away from graduation. We're like, what do we do? Um, we want to solve problems and we want to solve big problems. Um, so it went from focusing on gun violence to then focusing on the juvenile justice system, to us really taking a step back and saying, okay, let's think a little bit deeper about this, because we're really surface level right now. Right. Um, what is the root cause of these issues? Whether it's the rise in gun violence, whether it's the, uh, the young people that continue to be incarcerated because they're committing felonies, right? whether it's the raise in the AIDS rate, in Southeast DC, whether it's the lack of nutrition or the, the rise in uh, mental health issues in these communities. And across the board, and it's not just in DC, this is in urban and rural areas all across this country and in many ways across this world, yeah. that those being most affected by these issues are poor people. So we made this really audacious hypothesis to say, instead of trying to focus on all of these symptoms, what would it look like for us to raise median household income in the hopes that if we can raise people's income, then all of these other problems will start to kind of dwindle away. Mm -hmm. Give people more to live for. Right. Give people the ability to buy food, to be able to, uh, be able to purchase homes, to be able to own businesses. Um, so now we've launched an anti-poverty initiative in D.C. where we're working to move about 493 families um, out of poverty over the next four years. And what, like, w what sorts of activities and plans do you have in place to do that? Well, it's a work in progress. <laughs> well, right now, 
it's engaging the community because we understand it's going to mean nothing for us to run all of this programming if we don't shift culture. Right. Like we need people prepared for this journey. Mm -hmm. So part of the work that I'm doing now is I'm working very closely with the resident council president in a community called Greenleaf, which we're going to be working in and trying to figure out very thoughtfully how do we shift the culture here because poverty is generational here. Right. These aren't new poor people. These are people that have, their grandmother was in poverty. Their great-great-grandmother was in poverty. And before that, uh, they have ancestors that were slaves. Mm -hmm. All they've really ever known is destruction and turmoil in their communities. So how do we shift that and flip it on its head um, and thinking very deeply about that? But at a very basic level, we're using uh, a formula for prosperity, which right. is saying that if we use uh, investment capital and we pour it in these communities while providing social capital, while developing the human element, then we're going to start to really see change across the board. Have you, uh, uh, have you followed Killer Mike at all? Yeah, don't, you ought to talk about that Netflix show. I haven't seen the Netflix show yet, oh. I gotta watch it, man, but that, like, I, his, the whole, uh, um, his whole thing about buying houses in the community you're from, in building businesses in the community that you're from and his whole model with the barbershops and whatnot. I just, I just thought mm -hmm. it was so interesting because a lot of times you just try to think about how do we inject money, like throwing money at a problem doesn't mm -hmm. necessarily take care of the problem, right? Like sure. you gotta like, people gotta be able to lift themselves up, but you gotta give them the tools to be able to do yeah. that. You have to, you have to provide the supports. Money alone is not gonna solve anything. History shows that. Yeah, you, know, you gotta teach I, the man to fish. Even yeah. when I, like, let's look at the, the education system in D.C. We, per pupil, we spend second highest in the country, but we're, a, we're in the bottom 10 percentile as far as performance. And New York schools are, are right there. I think they're number one in spending, but they don't have this exceptional school system. Like, it's not just, all right, we're gonna put more and more and more money at the problem. That's the easy solution. Like I said, we were part of the problem too at the same time. That's why we thought deeper. It was like, all right, are we going to follow status quo mm -hmm. and just do what everybody else is doing and follow these narratives where it's like, okay, we need to pay teachers more and that will solve all the problems. No, it won't. <laughs> like, that's not going to solve all the problems. So what, what are we doing around the system? What do you feel like? What is, uh, is it that the, the system, the education system or the way it's delivered to certain communities just doesn't, it doesn't hit home with them or is it there's like a bigger structural problem of how like kids see themselves like wh what is it that makes because it's not it's not a lack of biological intelligence or talent or capability right mm -hmm. like, you can see two kids that might not perform well on a standardized test and will absolutely crush a game of chess or will be you know amazing rappers like just right off the top um, or build things with their hands and yet the school doesn't necessarily value or even consider any of those things when you're talking about poor performance what do you think is behind that? Well, when I look at a lot of the problems, specifically as it pertains to education, I think in many ways the powers that be attack these situations in the easiest way possible. They give the most candid solutions, um, or I'm sorry, the most cookie cutter solutions in the whole, because everybody would be like, oh yeah, that, I think that makes sense, let's just do that. But when we look at education systems, especially in low-income communities, hmm. These are systems that have been in place for decades. And these systems have pumped out generations of undereducated people that have pretty much stayed in these communities, right. then populated and sent their kids to these same schools who have pumped out undereducated citizens. Cycle, 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 cycle. So when you look at education, 
And this isn't something that's very popular or sexy to say. When we look at kids in high school, they've been under-resourced and undereducated for what, almost 10 years up to this point by the time they're getting there. So now we're working backwards. We're working backwards. We're spending all this money trying to put all these solutions in place. What we're saying, when we have kids that are in kindergarten mm -hmm. up until the point that they're around the sixth grade, why are we not putting all of our focus there so that they're educated, they're right. hopeful, they're empowered for their future? But while doing that, also thinking about, okay, who are we sending these kids home to? Because at the end of the day, their parents are undereducated at no fault of their own. Yeah. So what systems are we putting in place to now bring the parents into the classroom and to help them learn at the same time so that they can help their kids? If you're a kid, I don't care, if you're a kid in an under-resourced community, and let's say you are bright and you've done everything you need to do, I remember coming home and my mother helped me with my homework when I was struggling. Yeah. We have parents that can't help their kids with third and fourth grade math. And that's an issue. So how do you ever expect that kid to excel? Mm -hmm. Especially when they're not getting the one-on-one -on -one attention they need in the classroom because the classroom sizes are so large. Right. And we have to, we have to really rethink education, especially when it pertains to under-resourced uh, under communities because we're pumping out generations and generations of people that education is a community-wide activity. It doesn't just happen in the classroom. It's constantly happening. Mm -hmm. when, you have a when you have a child growing up in a community where they can't learn anything from anyone, then you're going to always continue to see these terrible outcomes. It's, a, it's amazing because that story is like the world over. So I'm, uh, uh, I'm back in Toronto Thursday, and then Friday uh, I leave for India, kind of traveling around, but most of the time I'm going to be in Mumbai. And when I was last there in 2015, I met a couple of the founders of the first hip-hop cruise in, in India and ended up at this music video shoot. I shot this rap cypher that blew my mind because I'm so like... You were rapping? Uh, I did rap later on, yeah, okay. with, with these guys. So I'm actually meeting um, a couple of them when I'm, when I'm there. So the talent, first of all, there is off the hook. But the thing that was crazy about this is I'm in Mumbai outside this massive bungalow that they're shooting this, this music video at. And there's like 40 guys around me and one guy looks like Snoop. Another guy looks like Dre. Like these guys embodied and like taken hip hop culture from America and they've made it their own. And these guys are rapping in like five or six languages, all these different dialects and, you know, from English to Hindi to Punjabi and whatnot. They're about that life. Like they're coming out of the streets in that context. And many of them are coming out of struggle with family that was undereducated. And then there's this whole class thing that's kind of weaved in there too. But it's the same thing. Like if their parents were kind of born into that circumstance and then they, had to hustle and never got much of an education. They weren't able to help their kids through this system, mm -hmm. right? And so it just kind of perpetuates itself. And you get to a point where, in some cases, parents will say, like, you know, you're, you're a young man or a young, you know, young girl, you got dreams for something bigger. You'll have parents saying that that's not for us. We can't have that. That's just not, it's, I, I can't give you that. You're not entitled to that. So it's almost like we hold back our own. So that, that dynamic that you're talking about, it's like it plays out the world over, right? Like it's, poverty just does that. It's just asking the question, how can a parent teach hope if they don't have hope of their own? They don't have hope for a better future. It really begs the question, what is the point of primary schools? Mm. I don't think as a country we've asked ourselves that question in a very long time. Like, is, is the purpose of these schools just to put as many people into college as possible? If that's the goal, then we're doing a terrible job at that also. Even that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know? So it's... We have to ask ourselves, is, once upon a time, schools existed to produce workers. 
and those workers would go on to drive the Industrial Revolution, mm -hmm. which would go on to drive the rapid expansion of the U.S. economy, which created the world that we live in today. We won that battle. Schools did exactly what they were yeah. set out to do. We're not at that point in history anymore. We have a country that's fractured. We have an economy that is showing that there's the haves and the have-nots. And there's a lot more have-nots than there is haves. Mm -hmm. We have, to the point that you made earlier, we have jobs that are, will be extinct. Not possibly, they will. will be extinct. In the next decade, we have fossil fuels that are being taken away. So um, the mining jobs are not going to be there. So now we have to really think to ourselves, what is going to be the purpose of the education system? And let's not even include college in this conversation. Mm -hmm. Primary education system going forward. Is it going to be to, put, to produce high-skilled workers that can go into tech? Is it going to be to make communities better? Is it going to be to produce thoughtful leaders that can help us to think differently about the way that we see the world? And if we're not, and obviously every community needs something different, but if we aren't asking ourselves these questions, then it's never going to shift. I got to play devil's advocate on this, though, because the system as it is right now and the haves and haves nots, first of all, I think the world operates on this mindset of scarcity when it should be operating on a mindset of abundance. Mm -hmm. But assuming that it's operating in scarcity, the haves have what they have because the have nots don't. And as long as the have nots keep consuming some shit they don't need, right, this economy keeps moving, right? Like it's, it's, it's fear and uncertainty. It's like buy this car, be fair, look this way live in that neighborhood and whatnot, as long as you're being made to feel inadequate in your current situation, in the skin that you're in, you're going to try and fill that gap by buying. And when you fill that gap by buying, that's what keeps this engine moving. So we need to almost like move to a completely different way of thinking about this. And that means that some people have a lot are going to have to have a little bit less. Mm. I don't know who authored this quote to someone in a position of privilege, even equality feels like oppression, right? So some people are going to lose some shit. So have you had these conversations with people like and what do you see that world looking like well consumerism is kind of the basis of capitalism in many ways and i agree with you on the point that you know we have to adopt a mindset of abundance because that's where the interconnectedness starts to to heal mm -hmm. you understand we have more than enough there's more to go around we can share because it's going to come back to us uh, but specifically when I think about consumerism, it's looking at, all right, what are we really teaching in schools? Like, I have been blessed that I opened a book at a very young age and realized, okay, I need to start investing. Right. Um, even now, I own real estate. You know, I own apartment buildings. I was thinking about buying my first home. I'm like, you know, I had went and looked at all these single family homes. I was going to spend too much on them because that's what society told yeah. me. Uh, and lucky enough, I had a mentor. They're like, why do you need a single family home? You never home. And I'm like, because it, it looks nice. Yeah. <laughs> I can have a party. Yeah. They were right. I ended up getting an apartment building and now I have a two bedroom apartment inside of this much larger building and pe other people are paying my mortgage for me. You know, but did I ever learn that in school? No. <laughs> Did I learn about lending in school? No. <laughs> I learned about credit, investing, um, assets versus liabilities, none of that. Like the things that really help us to be effective adults and to build wealth and to grow, mm -hmm. they're not teaching us in schools. 
It's, that's all self-taught stuff. Maybe if you take a, a finance class in college. Yeah. But at what point, again, going back to what is going to be the role of uh, education is to say, okay, what are we making not an elective, but a standard in schools that we need to be producing financially literate citizens. Mm -hmm. So the reason that somebody like Jeff Bezos is able to be worth a hundred billion dollars is because you have hundreds of millions of Americans buying shit they don't need. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, But at the end of the day, who's educating them to say that this is something that you don't need? Like consumerism is driven on the back of miseducation. Yeah. The fact that you own real estate, the fact that you learn to invest, the fact that you've kind of self-taught yourself all this or you've had mentors along the way. Yeah. And you know that the, the system as a, as a whole doesn't necessarily, it won't give certain people that knowledge. It just won't, right? And I think for the most part, that's not even a, a, just a race issue. I think that's just a socioeconomic issue. Like if you're below a certain uh, you know, threshold financially, no investment advisor is going to talk to you. You're not going to have, like, unless you're lucky, you're not going to have some uncle that's going to kind of show you the ropes or something. Yep. You just don't even know there's that world of opportunity out there. So it's like, I don't know that capitalism itself is the problem. The problem is that this is capitalism that's been distorted and twisted by a few people that just want to monopolize certain things or sell it a certain way or actually not have an equal playing field for everybody. So now that you learn all this stuff, like how do you go about thinking about this with your programs like are these things that you're running in good projects like how are you exposing kids to this stuff again we we talked about it to start this conversation as being an example for them for them to know that it's real you know to take and even some of my staff because they're i hire from the community Mm -hmm. like to take them to the construction site for my building and say hey this is how i did this and you can do it too just for the kids to see i want to build i have no passion for real estate but I want to continue to get more and more and more. And I have other, some of you have other hustles also. Yeah. Uh, but to show them, like, look, I, this is how you do it. You're not going to learn this in school, but don't think it's a pipe dream that you can build wealth, build wealth for yourself and for your family. Mm-hmm. Like, because I'm here, I'm doing it. And I hope, and let me be the one to make the mistakes because <laughs> now you can learn from me too. And I right. hope that you get it 10 times faster than me. And then you donate back to the programs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, I want everyone to be successful, especially the kids that come from my programs. These are kids that are growing up poor. Mm-hmm. Like they deserve to inherit the wealth of this world. Like, cause there's plenty to go around. There is plenty to go around. Yeah. Uh, so just being a living example for them. What do you think should be the the objective of primary schools? Like what should schools be doing in your eyes? Uh, I think for schools, we have to take a step back. And as we've expanded economies, as trade has become this global thing, we need to really scale down schools and make them a lot more local, Uh, especially in communities that are suffering and understanding that these communities are gonna be healed by the people that are growing up there. Mm -hmm. So when I think of a school, when I think of DC and I think of our schools, like a Anacostia, like a Blue, like a Wilson, um, these are schools that are in communities that are suffering from these very macro issues, but they're happening at micro levels. Mm. And why aren't we making an effort? We're graduating hundreds of kids a year back out into these communities. And why aren't we making an effort to say, okay, these are the issues that our community are faced with. So we need to put curriculums in place to say, gun, we need to have a gun violence course. Mm-hmm. We need to have a socio-emotional learning course so that kids can be better, um, better uh, advocates in their community. 
we need to be teaching civics so that these kids know like, okay, these are how laws are made. These are how the laws are made that affect you. Right. You know, we just, um, we just passed the marijuana legislation and kids have begun abusing it at younger ages. Why aren't we educating them within the school and saying, okay, these are the effects of marijuana on your brain and on your body and on your development. And weaving in these, much, these, ma these macro and micro issues into the much larger curriculum to make education relevant to their life. Mm. So they know like, okay, when I'm up and I'm in biology class, then I'm not just learning about, okay, this, this big problem, but I'm learning, okay, ecology that's relevant to the Anacostia River that runs through my neighborhood, you know, right, so that they yeah. become more invested in their surroundings. I, again, it goes back to what is the role of the school? I think the role of the school is to help heal and build communities. We have broken communities, so we need citizens that are willing to go out there and are educated in how to do that. Darius, you've been really generous with your time, man. I, uh, I feel like this is a much longer conversation. I'd love to stay in touch and hopefully connect. I have no sure. media plans to come down to D.C., but I'd love to stop by at some time. Where can sure. people find out more about you, your work? How can people help? Yeah, just visit goodprojects.org. Okay. Um, very simple, yeah, goodprojects.org. And um, we'll make sure that we keep putting stuff up there and keeping people abreast of where we are along the timeline. Um, and yeah, and just across social at Good Projects DC. Amazing. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll put up all the links uh, on the site for, for Good Projects. But dude, it's like I said, 24 hours ago, I didn't know who you were. And I feel that much better about the world today because there's people like you out there hustling to, to do this. Because this is just uh, it's, it's always, it's inspiring, man. It's always better to just move in silence, man. Yeah. That's, why, that's why I wasn't joking yesterday. David, he pulled the wool over my eyes. He told me we'll have it like a small panel here in South By. <laughs> I was like, okay, it's Only cool. 2,100 people. I didn't find that out till yesterday morning at 8 o'clock. Wow. And I was okay. like, okay, why is the founder of South By greeting us this morning? Yeah. And like, oh, yeah, you're kicking off South By Southwest. I'm like, what? <laughs> well, you held it together, though. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to show <laughs> yeah, up, man. Yeah. I'm going to show up. I'm going to show up well, man, every time. That's what, you see, I was in a T-shirt and yeah. jeans. I got off the flight at 2 o'clock yesterday morning. Like, okay, they flew me in. I'm here. The, uh, the hustle is real. Yeah, uh, man, we got to keep going. And I hope is. that um, I'm going to try to put together an event tomorrow evening. Okay. Um, try to raise some money for a better women's shelter out here. So okay. if you know any people around amazing okay yeah yeah I'll, let's uh, i'll get the details for that yeah i'm trying um, to, i'm trying to find a, a bar now that'll host us okay um darius thanks so much man this is uh, no. that's a wrap thank you man if you'd like to support the awoken word podcast there are many ways you can do it you can subscribe in your app of choice we're on itunes google podcasts Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or TuneIn, for example. The biggest thing that you can do is rate this podcast and leave your review in iTunes or wherever you listen to it. You can also talk about this podcast, its guests, or the ideas shared on it in your own podcasts. If you find benefit in this show, tell your friends, tell your family, and even more importantly, tell your enemies. They'll appreciate it too. And of course, you can also follow us on social media, particularly on Twitter. Our handle there is at Awoken Word, on Instagram as at Awoken Word Podcast, or on our Facebook page. Thank you. Your support is greatly appreciated.